Hello, 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 and welcome to another episode of Kiki with Norwood. I'm your host, Norwood. Thank you so much for being here. In today's episode, I interview David Alt. He is an author and global education advocate, so we talk all about his work with the Kaleidoscope Child Foundation, helping to educate uh, children, particularly young girls across the world, why that is so important, and we also talk about his life journey, how it's similar to my own, and what we can learn from it. So without further ado, David Alt. We are back with author and global education advocate, David Alt. How are you doing, David? I am so great. How about you? Oh, I am great and so happy to have you here as a guest on Kiki with Norwood today. We've wanted to have you on for a little while now, and we finally got you. It's so wonderful. I'm honored to, to be asked and uh, just so proud of all of the work that you're doing and oh. the, the way in which your world has opened up and, and uh, the way in which you're representing Oh, well, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Um, for those of you listening, David and I have known each other for probably three or four years now. Um, first met him when I went to visit uh, the Spiritual Living Center of Atlanta, which he was the um, the head minister of at the time. And um, we've kept in touch since. And uh, he's got some really exciting things going on in his life, which we're going to talk about in just a minute. But before we get into that, I do have one question that I like to start off every interview with because I find it kind of um, is a fascinating little insight into the guest. Um, so, David, as a gay man, what was the first piece of queer culture that you can remember being exposed to, and um, what effect did it have on you? Oh, gosh. Um, I would say it was um, in my the naive period of leaving college and moving to New York City. Mm. Um, I had a huge desire to want to be an actor. And I mm -hmm. threw all caution to the wind and saved up all of my money and worked really hard and moved to the big city. And big Apple. Um, they say you can take the, the boy out of the country, but you can't take the country out of the boy. <laughs> and that was so true for me growing up in Southeast Texas and then arriving in the Big Apple and just just, I, I laugh now, I cringe now sometimes at, at how naive I was, but my exposure to the queer culture was Greenwich Village and oh, wow. uh, going, going to bars for the first time and just being in a saturated environment of people like me, whereas before it was always so taboo and uh, so secretive and and New York City is where I really had to deal with my shame about who I was and uh, didn't overcome it entirely there. I, I, I did once I moved to Los Angeles, but that was really my first big exposure into seeing that there were many people like me. <laughs> yeah, and that is quite the exposure to go from, yeah. from Texas to Greenwich Village, which is like, you know, the Mecca, essentially the birthplace of, you know, the, the gay rights movement, and right. all things gay. Oh, well, that is very fascinating. And you said that you then moved to Los Angeles and you had quite the life journey. You started as an actor. And then I, if I have the story right, when you were in Los Angeles, you then at some point met Louise Hay and started to be mentored by her. Um, and for those listening who might not be familiar, Louise Hay is a world-renowned thought leader and author. Um, can you tell us about that relationship and how that came to be? Sure. I, uh, 
I had grown up in a fundamentalist Christian environment and um, knew early on that I wanted to explore journalism and writing and um, essentially came from nothing. So I knew that if that was going to happen, I was going to have to study hard and get some kind of a scholarship, Mm. which did happen. And I was going to go to North Texas State, but my very fundamentalist mother wanted me to go to Oral Roberts University instead. Oh, I've heard of that one. That's Yeah. That's... And you don't hear so much about it now, but back then it was one of the main Christian campuses, uh, television shows on Sunday and all that kind of stuff. It's, it's kind of like in the same ballpark of like, um, um, is it Liberty University? Yeah, but I would say Liberty on steroids. Wow, so liberty is like the liberal version of this then. Yeah. So this was this was, you know, wow. major, major, major. And Oral Roberts was a, a televangelist, so he mm. had his big international telecast every Sunday. And um she really wanted me to go there. And of course I didn't because mm. I was wanting to get away from that environment. Sure. But long story short, uh, I made a deal with her at 17 that I would apply for a scholarship, thinking that I was really clever and I was getting out of that because there was no way they were going to let me in. Mm. And and they did. So um, in fulfilling that agreement, I didn't go accept my scholarship and went to Oral Roberts instead. Uh, while there, I met this guy who was in the arts department, the music department, mm-hmm. and he sort of ran these music groups. And so I became a member of one of these music groups to get uh, scholarship money. Long story short, uh, years later after New York, I run into that same guy in West Hollywood. Oh, wow. Um, I had left New York to come to LA to audition for pilot season for Mm -hmm. NBC. And while I was, and didn't know anybody. And while I was walking down Melrose Avenue, I literally turned a corner and ran into this old fine arts. I mean, not old as an age, but old person, old friend uh, on the street. And at first I thought, Oh my God, he's gonna invite me to church or something. And, but it turns out that he was running sound for Louise Hay, this woman who was just getting started. And for your audience, uh, like you said, there, there might not be very many people who knew who she was, but Mm -hmm. she grew to be the, the largest global spiritual, um, icon in terms of publishing and working with people. But it started as her being a mentor for people who were challenged by the, the diagnosis of AIDS, yeah, particularly in the eighties when there was no support system for that. Sure. Yeah. And so she was doing these weekly talks in West Hollywood in uh, a place called Plummer Park. And Jerry was running sound for her, my friend from ORU. Mm. And he said, wow, what are you doing here? And we got to talking and he said, Hey, and he was in a, a, Uh, He had a partner and they both sang and he said, what if we got together and we created music for Louise? She really wants that. Mm -hmm. And we could take some of her messages and start to write songs that were in harmony with her message. And 
I kind of hemmed and hawed at first because I didn't know who she was and I thought it was yeah. going to be more church oriented, but I went and I listened to her and basically it was a very simple message and it was, you're, you're enough. And uh, there's nothing about you that is wrong and you're divinely designed. And she was just giving people the space and the forum to be able to reclaim themselves. And so we did, we started to create this music. And then as the AIDS crisis began to become overwhelming and she became sort of this main uh, target of, of, of someone who was doing something about that, those audiences began to grow in West yeah. Hollywood and she had to move location. And at the height of all of that, there was more than 800 people who were showing up every week. Wow. And they were coming from all over. They were coming from Europe. Um, they were coming from Canada and, and you, you name it because there was no resource. There was no hope. And she was like this one beacon of hope. Mm. And so to be in that environment and the intensity of that, and to then begin to travel with Louise was the greatest education of my life. Um, and it was, it was sobering and humble. And she would teach us how to be with people who were dying. And I, I would get my list every week of people that I would go support or take care of their animals or do something in their home. And I kid you not, Nora would in, in a week, the list that I had would change because the people would pass away and then I, I would get a new list. And oh, that's wow. just the way that those times were. And um, it's still hard to fathom even to this day. But Louise became like my second mom. And, um, and we remained very, very close uh, up until just a few years ago when she passed away at the age of 90. Wow. Yeah. That is an amazing story and just amazing how the universe works, how you met this person at such a kind of rigid conservative institution. And then all those years later, you know, they had a new life in Los Angeles and you just happened to be visiting and happened to run into them and, and, you know, one thing leading to another, but that is exactly, it's like, you know, maybe it was meant to be that that was the route because if I hadn't gone there, if I hadn't met this person, Jerry, I would have never um, had the life and the relationship that I had with Louise. Exactly. Things work out how they're supposed to, even if we don't always realize it in the moment. That's, you know, that is incredible. Now, as a member of um, the LGBTQ community and a uh, thought leader, how do you think queer people who have been wounded by religion in the past, kind of like yourself and like myself have, how can people begin to heal from that and rediscover their spirituality? Oh, gosh, what a great question. I, I don't think that there's a one-size-fits-all. Sure. Um, I don't think that there's any cookie-cutter solution. But what I do believe in wholeheartedly is the pure intent of the individual to want to heal. Mm. And when you have that, then you can do just about anything. Um, and what I mean by a pure intent to heal is to not stay identified with the wound. In other words, to be able to look at the past um, and to look at the journey and to look at all of the characters involved in the narrative of our story 
and to to migrate away from making anybody wrong and find a way to go, okay, that happened. And all of those things, all of those things contributed to me being who I am today. Yeah. And so without those, would I be here? Would I have learned what I've learned? And it's really about investing in our resilience more than investing in our wounds. And when I find people who are willing to do that, um, then then there's really truly no limit to the way in which we begin to reclaim our power and to identify ourselves with something more than just our past. So it kind of boils down to whether or not you are in a place where you can begin to move out of the mindset of being a victim of what has happened to you, what is the past, and instead have it when the desire to kind of grow and move past that is stronger than that victim mindhood, then maybe the scales start to tip. Is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah. And, and again, there's no right or wrong to that. There's no, mm. this is, this is right. And this is wrong, or this is better. Um, it's, it's an individual thing that happens to all of us. It's, it's like a consciousness crossroads. Mm. And, um, when, when circumstances or people or influences come into our lives and they extend sort of a helping hand to, to uh, encourage us to not uh, drown in story, mm-hmm. then we, we have the opportunity to elevate ourselves and to use the story, but to use it constructively uh, in order to help create that bridge and that helping hand for other people. So it's really about finding ways to, I guess, um, climb out of the ditch Mm. and then go back to the edge of the ditch and to see if there's anybody else who would like to be helped out. Well, that's a very powerful visual. And I like how you said that um, you kind of get to a place of realizing that whatever happened to you in the past happened for a reason and it made you who you are because um, I've kind of felt that way with my journey um, I, similar to you, I grew up in a very fundamentally religious household. And um, looking back, I think the only reason that I got out of there and kind of was able to shed beliefs that didn't serve me and begin to question things and find my own beliefs and answers in life, the only thing that made me do that was the fact that I was gay. So it was this mm. catalyst that made me start to question things. Whereas for other family members who aren't gay, they still believe the same things. They still have the same extremist views. They still have the same, um, what I view to be unkind views of, you know, certain groups and other people. But because I was gay, I had to wrestle with that. And I had to begin to question the things I'd been taught and look for answers and see whether or not they were actually true. Um, yeah. I mean, that's that's extraordinary because the thing that you might have originally believed to be a curse mm -hmm. actually was your own personal salvation into a a different life. Yeah, and it absolutely was. And I I did think it was a curse. When I was, um, I guess, 12 or 13 is when I started to realize that I was gay. Um, I didn't even have a word for it, didn't know what it meant because I was also homeschooled. Um, So I was very sheltered. Um, Mm -hmm. And so struggled with it alone, didn't tell a soul, but I, you know, would cry and pray and pray and pray for God to 
quote unquote fix me because I thought there was something wrong with me. Or at one point I thought that I was possessed. I thought there was a demon or something because mm-hmm. that's what I've been taught. Mm-hmm. And so it was just several years of just very, very dark times um, going through all that alone uh, before I started to question what I've been taught and start to see if it was true and start to reach out for other resources and started to learn that, you know, there were other people like me and that, you know, we are valid, normal people. There's nothing wrong with us, but you know, that was a very long, painful journey. Um, but like you said, at the end of the day, it's because of that journey, because of that quote unquote curse that I became the person I am now and now have the opportunities and the platform that I now have. So I'm grateful for it in the long run. Exactly. I was something similar, you know, talking about, um, sideline critics, you know, people who, um, one of my uh, colleagues used to say that mediocrity always attacks excellence. And Mm -hmm. his his point was that um, people who are not doing or the sideline critics are the ones usually criticizing the people who are in the arena and the people who are doing that. Yeah. And I've always said, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then just the other day I was thinking though, that sometimes our, wish was to make those sideline critics go away. But then again, the, it's the sideline critic or it's the, the uh, fundamentalist religion or it's the dogma that becomes the irritant that mm. is inside the oyster or the clam or the muscle that produces the pearl. And so it's almost like you look back at that time and you go, oh my God, that was the perfect environment to empower me not to disempower me, but to empower me to rise above it. And I just love that perspective because the more that I can celebrate all of it, and that was the big thing that Louise would always drive home to me. You know, I was this ambitious actor and I would, I would get things in Hollywood, but sometimes I'd be up from really big stuff and then I wouldn't get it. And I I remember in front of her saying, gosh, if I had just grown up in a different environment, I wouldn't be having these challenges. And she just laughed at me and she said, honey, you have got to learn to honor the entirety of your journey. And I never forgot that. And I use that many ways. And and I, I look at, well, I've got to honor the sideline critics. I've got to honor the dogma. I've got to honor the wounding. I get to honor all of that because it literally did. It, it, it made you and it made me and everybody else who we are today in a positive way, if we are able to look at it that way. Mm. And that I love that lesson and such a important lesson, but some one that we need to be reminded of, you know, every so often, because it's very easy to forget. Sure. Now, uh, kind of pivoting here, Um, so you started off as an actor, but you have kind of blossomed into a multi-hyphenate as we say in the biz. (laughs) So you are, you are a minister, a teacher, you're a coach, an author, you're so many things. Um, but you're also a global education advocate and the founder of Kaleidoscope Child Foundation. Um, can you tell us about the foundation, what its mission is and the, what you guys do? Sure. It, uh, started 15 years ago and, it was not anything that was planned. It just happened. But basically, I loved to travel and to see the world. And one of the ways that I could do that long ago was to take people on sacred site journeys. 
to take them to famous places. And if I could get enough people to go, then my trips would be covered. And one of those trips was to Thailand and to Cambodia. And Mm. I knew nothing about Cambodia. I had no idea about the genocide that happened in the 1970s. Um, I had no idea that there is one of the great ancient wonders of the world, which is a temple complex that actually is the largest spiritual temple complex. In yeah, isn't um, is that Angkor, Angkor Wat? Is that Angkor what it's Wat? Yeah. Oh, that's and amazing. So then I was excited to go. But when we landed, it was a real wake-up call to the the delineation between the haves and the have-nots. The haves were tourists, and the have-nots were the local Cambodian people. And there were there was obvious poverty, just you know, rampant in front of us. And uh, most of the people on the trip were not accustomed to that. And the natural response is empathy and to want to do something. However, you know, in the, in the broader scheme of things, we understand that those kinds of what they call one-offs uh, don't really provide sustainability, and mm-hmm. you have to be careful around that. Well, I was glad I didn't know any of that. I was glad that my naivete was like, yeah, and we worked with the guide that we have, and it's a, it's a very detailed, beautiful story, but essentially we ended up feeding uh, a bunch of starving children on the banks of this local river. And we had to be careful about what we, what we were bringing. Uh, so it would be in harmony with our digestive system. We had to go to these local markets. It was this big turned into a big production. But when I went to pay for it all, which was enough to fill three vans, um, it was 86 us dollars. Wow. I mean, it was, it, it stopped me in my tracks and I thought you got to be kidding. All of this food that we just bought was $86. And so we went and we distributed it and it was, it was earth shattering the way in which it all unfolded. And basically I made a vow. I made a vow on the bank of that riverbed that I would come back. And that I would try to find some sustainability with all of this. I would, I would try to um, find an avenue or a resource for these children because something about being in the midst of those children who had nothing sort of ignited the trigger of my own childhood poverty and the stuff that I had gone through. And there was a there was a mystical experience. I mean, I just I was them and they were me. I don't know how else to explain it, but um, I said I'm going to come back, and I did. And I did. The first five years made a ton of mistakes and didn't know what I was doing, and then I eventually learned how to create uh, rudimentary water wells for people in villages, and that morphed into building the first school. Uh, like a classroom, which turned into a campus. And now today, 15 years later, um, Kaleidoscope Child Foundation is my nonprofit. And it's really what I want to do more than anything. It's where my joy is. It's where my passion is. And we're now in, we have two campuses in Cambodia. We have two schools in India. In fact, I'll be there in a few weeks to uh, christen one of the schools that 
is the first uh, educational opportunity in a slum in the state of Bihar. Mm -hmm. And then we do a lot of intrinsic work in Guatemala with girls who are in child uh, slave labor situations. It's, it's uh, tough work. It's intense work. Uh, it's made me understand the, the cultural narratives of these countries. It's made me um, look beyond uh, our Western arrogance like we know better mm -hmm. and to really understand what it means to empower people who don't have access to education. And I can tell you a thousand stories in the midst of all of that, but basically that's what it is, Kaleidoscope Child Foundation. And we now collectively serve over a thousand children. Wow. That is amazing that you are able to serve so many children. And now I realize there's a lot of charitable needs in the world. There's a lot of, you know, people that need help in different ways. Mm -hmm. What made you focus in on education specifically as your focus? Yeah, that's so great because just observing the, the children who in Cambodia, the ones who had access to school and then those who didn't. And those who didn't were the ones who were sequestered in these sort of uh, back villages that had no resource. And I noticed that they didn't have a uniform and they weren't going anywhere when we were digging these wells. And I thought, well, everybody deserves to have an education. Mm -hmm. and, um, and that's really how it came to be. But then I learned, this is what happens, is then it's not enough to give them education. Now you've got to find a way to give them clean water or they're too ill to be able to come. And then it's not enough to give them education and clean water. Now you got to teach them life skills, how to use it. And it just continues to, to grow and to expand in terms of the holistic model by which you, you work with these developing countries. And uh, probably one of the coolest things, though, that I have learned is that when you educate girls in these environments, so mm -hmm. girls in Guatemala, girls in India and Cambodia, who uh, like many other situations are marginalized or are not thought to be equal to the male, that by educating a girl, you are, you are in the top five solutions for the climate crisis. And wow. I was like, what? And it's like, well, yeah, it makes sense. When you, when you educate girls, girls become the reasonable voice of the communities. The girls then gain some sense of autonomy about themselves. And they don't necessarily then marry because that's mm -hmm. what generations before them did. They don't necessarily continue to have a multitude of children that they begin to make wiser choices about their passions and, and what they want to do. And just those simple things begin to change the temperament and the consciousness of these villages, which then uh, reduce the, the carbon footprint, if you will, of overpopulation. And lo and behold, the more you educate girls, the more it affects the planet. Wow. Well, that's amazing. Just that, that ripple effect of something so fundamental as having education and specifically equal access to education for girls. And then it just kind of creates this amazing snowball 
of positive effects on not just their local community, but the world as a whole. Yeah, it's it's really, I mean, just Google that and you'd be amazed at the research and the data that exists. Well, I'm absolutely going to do that once we get off this call. I'm going to look into that because that is fascinating. And the um, Kaleidoscope Child Foundation, you all recently launched a new initiative uh, to help fundraise for scholarships called Cards for a Cause. And um, I actually had the pleasure of performing at an event last week um, that you all were doing to promote this initiative. Thank you. Uh, can so you tell much. us? Oh, it was my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Can you tell us uh, more about Cards for a Cause and um, how people can get involved? Sure. We're always looking for, uh, you know, donor funding and, and ways to uh, keep our budget thriving. And so, being in Guatemala a couple of weeks ago, um, we went to we went on location to all of the villages for all of the Guatemalan girls that we are offering scholarships to. Um, I felt it was important to engage with their families. Um, quick story: one of the one of the girls that I just am so excited about, and I just honor her journey. She had been in a sort of slave labor situation for almost four years. So from the time that she was 12 to the time that she was 16, she worked in what are called tortillerias in Guatemala, which are tortilla factories. And these girls wind up there because their families basically sell them. Um, uh, The... The average family in Guatemala is like 10 children. And whoa, whoa, whoa. The average family? Yeah. So there's, that means that there's a lot that have more than that. Exactly. So there, you know, it's a, it is a, a Catholic country. And so from that religious standpoint, just so many children. And oh, when they can't feed them or, or work with them, they just try, um, what generations before them have done, and that is to marry them off. Or, I mean, it's it's just this endless cycle, right? So, mm-hmm. lately, I would say within the last fifty years, all of these sort of slave labor operations have happened, and they've now uh, are accustomed to selling some of their children to these factories for sixty dollars a month. So. Long story short, Vilma, this one Guatemalan girl, was in that situation until she managed to get out. And we've been trying to help her with her studies. And she's just scholastically brilliant. And yet, even after being in the program for a couple of years, one of the local villagers, one of the men in the local villagers, went to her mom to want to buy her back because he wanted to, his son to marry her. And he made a promise that if they would sell her to him for his son, that he would pay for the father's medical costs because he had he was an alcoholic, he had diabetes and mm. was really struggling. And she felt like she had to do that. Wow. And it's just that those are the kinds of situations that we can't relate to sometimes. And And so Cards for a Cause was, I created an afternoon of art in Guatemala with a bunch of the children and the teens um, that we sponsor and just allowed them to create, not because they had to make something to sell or to survive in the markets, but just to create. And then I took all of those things, all of those 
precious pieces of artwork. We brought them back, and a company here in Atlanta, Georgia, was kind enough to help us design some cards for free. And so we've been we're selling them for the holiday and beyond. And so the money that we uh, recoup from this particular project will go back and it will pay for all of those Guatemalan scholarships. That is awesome. Where can people go to um, to get their hands on some of these cards and support? They can go to our website and it's kaleidoscopechildfoundation.org. So I know it's a mouthful, but uh, kaleidoscopechildfoundation.org. And there's a, there's a link on the homepage that says cards for a cause and they can go there. That's perfect. And I saw the cards and uh, they are really, really beautifully well done. The artwork is great. They've got a message on the back all about what David was just talking about, about um, where the money is going and how it is making a difference. Um, So it's a fantastic way. If you're going to be sending out Christmas cards anyway, or holiday cards, or you need even thank you cards, they have multiple designs for different occasions. um, And they are just the perfect, perfect um, way to give back while also kind of paying it forward and giving someone a beautiful card. So I encourage everyone to go to the website and check it out. Thank you. Yes. So, uh, David, a couple more questions for you. What is the best thing about your job? (laughs) Oh, the best thing about my job is realizing that I'm not always right. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> okay. Do you care to elaborate on that? It's well, I, I'd love to, uh, dismantle my worldview. Um, I think it's important that we all do that. Um, you know, when we, when we think that we're right all the time, or when we think we know that we stifle our own growth, um, we get in our own way. And so, one of the best things about working overseas and developing countries and in slums and uh, communities that are, that are impoverished is to, is to have my worldview crumble and to see that what I might think is joy um, is nothing compared to the joy that, uh, that some of these kids can create just by playing in the street. Mm. Um, but also realizing that what I might think is best for them isn't. It might yeah. be it might be too abrupt for their culture. So I get to be humbled all the time, and learn that um, there's a multiple entry points with regards to what's best for people. That's a valuable lesson, and I love that you're sharing that. So, what is something that you're passionate about? besides your work? So something outside of the realm of your work, something else you're passionate about? I just, I just deeply admire the arts, um, cinema, music, um, not to blow smoke up your dress, but I think you have a fabulous voice. Oh, and so when they're, when they're, I'll blow smoke up your dress. Uh, but when I hear people in their element and when I, when I can feel uh, their connection to that, whether it's in a film or a live performance or a piece of art. Um, mm-hmm. It's just so moving. And that's why um, the arts are so important. And um, I, I become sad for our country because our educational system cuts those programs. Yeah, And yet I, I can appreciate other countries who revere that and would mm-hmm. never dare do that because 
that's one of the things that really establishes a, um, such a, a stability within the individual. Mm. And that, and I should mention, by the way, you also have a great voice yourself. And I've, we've had the pleasure of singing together once, and that was really wonderful. People um, are still talking about that. Oh, they are still talking? Oh, good. <laughs> I love it. That's fantastic. <laughs> so if you could turn back time and talk to your 18-year-old self, mm. what would you tell him? What's something he needs to hear? Oh, I would say relax. Um, mm. Everything's going to work out. Um I would, I would find a way to, to find the, the language that my 18 year old self would be able to hear, um, that would help me dissolve my fears, mm-hmm. my fears of unworthiness and my fears of not enoughness. Um, because so much of that time, um, I began to sort of create roots in struggle that life had to be a struggle that having enough money had to be a struggle or um, not being good enough in terms of being lovable and all of those kinds of things. If I could go back and just say no, all of that's nonsense and who you are is beautiful and, mm. and worthy and to lighten up, yeah. um, I would do that. And that's, I think that's something that a lot of us need to hear, especially that age, but it's like you said, it's hard to hear that at that age and, take it and accept it as, you know, as truth. It's hard to, it's hard to hear and digest that, but it it is, it is the truth. Mm -hmm. So David, if you were king of the world for just one day (laughs) and you had unlimited power and resources, what is one thing you would change? Mm. Wow. Um, one thing that I could change, um, It's similar to a question that I've always wanted to ask people, and that was, if you had the attention of the entire world, what would you Mm. say? Mm. So if I were king with unlimited resources, I would invite everybody to one big global forum, and I would just talk to everybody about the importance of personal value and how powerful everyone is and the, the power of thought. I mean, if I'm king, I could mandate that they come. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I wouldn't, I, I, w- I would create an opportunity for, and, and find a way to get people to engage with one another mm. in a big worldwide forum. That's great because, you know, it's so easy to get kind of caught up in our own neighborhoods and tribes essentially and not reach out to people yeah. that are different from us, people from other backgrounds, people that, you know, have other views and experiences that we could learn from um, and have it, like you said, in a forum where it's, um, you know, safe to talk and learn from each other. Yeah. Like maybe I could mix up particular countries that historically are in friction with one another and make them sit together. <laughs> yeah. I <laughs> love that. <laughs> Speaking of love, uh, before we end our interview, I do want to play a quick round of Love It and Over It with you. So for those of you listening, this is where myself and my guest share something we are loving this week that we want to share with all of you, and then something that we are over. So it's a chance to vent a little bit. Um, That can be healthy sometimes. So I'll start, David, if you want to take a moment to think of yours. Um, My Love It This Week is that Thanksgiving is right around the corner. We're about two weeks away from Thanksgiving. It's one of my favorite holidays. I love 
the um, emphasis on gratitude and on friends and family coming together to share a delicious meal. Um, I also love to eat, so I'm not <laughs> complaining about all the delicious food. Um, but what I'm excited about this year is that we just ordered the whole meal from Whole Foods because we are so busy and um, getting ready to go back on tour. Um, I think we leave two days after Thanksgiving, something like that, like right after we leave. Um, so rather than trying to deal with all of that and cook everything from scratch, we're just said this year, we're just going to order it from Whole Foods. We've ordered the, you know, the feast from Whole Foods and we just have to warm it up. We don't have to cook anything and clean up will be easy. So loving keeping things simple this holiday season. <laughs> what about you? Oh, uh, what do I love? Um, I, I love living in Atlanta. Yeah. Why? Um, I love the airport. I love the fact that the Atlanta airport is literally a hub to the world. And um, because airports are a part of my livelihood, um, I just appreciate living here and, um, and the, the accessibility that that provides. Mm. That is actually something I take for granted sometimes because you're right. You can get anywhere in the world, most of them with a direct flight or, you know, without too much hassle and usually for a decent price from Atlanta. And I I say that because I've, I've had the other experience of living in areas where gosh, to get to the airport, it was two, three hour commute, you know? So this Mm. is, I, I really appreciate living here. Absolutely. Now, moving on to over it, um, what I'm over is kind of in the same vein of my love it and that it involves the holidays. I'm over that it's already Christmas everywhere. It doesn't matter what store I walk into. There's Christmas music playing. There's Christmas decorations. There's Christmas things for sale. It all smells like Christmas. Like Halloween is barely cold and dead in the ground and they're already Christmas, Christmas, Christmas. I just want us to like go back to when people used to wait until like Thanksgiving or right at least like right around Thanksgiving before they would have all this Christmas stuff. So for me, it just seems, I guess it annoys me because it's symbolic of the over commercialization of Christmas that I guess we've been talking about since, you know, 50 or 60 years ago with, you know, Charlie Brown um, (laughs) with Linus saying that Christmas was too commercial. I think it's only continued since then, but I don't know. It just, it's a pet peeve of mine. It happens every year. I don't know why I'm surprised that it, come so early every year, but every year it catches me off guard. And I'm just like, no, no, I want to enjoy Christmas. And if you shove it down my throat for three months, I'm not going to enjoy it. (laughs) Like let it just last for a few weeks and be its own thing. But anyway, I know not everyone feels that way, but that's my personal over it this week. Uh, How about you, David? I would echo some of the things that you've said and and just uh, think about the commercialism. I'm blessed that I have a circle of friends now and our agreement is that we don't really do that for Christmas, but that we find a way to either make something or we, we pay attention to our conversations throughout the year. And we try to surprise each other by giving something that we've talked about uh, or expressed a desire to have. And so we really try to be very conscious rather than just buying something meaningless just to fulfill the obligation of giving. Mm. So uh, to me, it's um, if we're going to give gifts to, to make them meaningful and they don't necessarily have to be bought, they can be made, they can be painted, they can be created in some way. 
I love that. I think that's a great idea and a great way of doing it because I mean, at the end of the day, for the most parts, you know, we're, we're all adults and we can kind of, you know, if we need something, we can usually go and get it. Um, but so it's, it's kind of nice on the holidays to get something that is, you know, a little more heartfelt or is made something with a little more meaning and, uh, kind of forget about, you know, the going out and buying something that we don't really need. Right. So, well, David, thank you so much for joining us this week. It has been an absolute pleasure and give us that URL one more time of where people can learn about, um, the uh, foundation and then also learn about you. Uh, the foundation is kaleidoscope child foundation.org. Uh, and they can go there and learn all about, uh, the opportunities to actually come with us on trips and to serve. And then my website is davidalt.com and alt is spelled a U L T. Perfect. Thank you so much again for joining us. And again, everyone, I encourage you to go to the Kaleidoscope Child Foundation website and check out those cards for a cause. They really are fantastic. Thank you so much, David. Thank you, Norwood. What an honor. Appreciate it. And that's going to do it for this week's episode of Kiki with Norwood. If you liked what you heard, please be sure to subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already and leave us a five-star review on iTunes. It really does help make a difference for other people to find the podcast and enjoy it as well. And also remember, you can share this podcast with your friends and family on Facebook and Twitter, wherever you are online. Share the link out there, anchor.fm slash Norwood, and people can find it that way as well. Thanks again to our producer of the show, Jane Madigan. And if you would like to be a guest on a future episode of Kiki with Norwood, you can email Jane via her email address, which is in the show notes. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time on Kiki with Norwood. <laughs>